You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. every week here at Central, and at the end of which we have a discussion, and that's recorded as well, and it goes out on the interwebs, and, uh, you know, we, yeah, this is a sermon, but we like to also call it a podcast, because it, frankly, I think that's kind of more of what it is, since we're a family, and a group of friends gets together and talks about these really deep and important topics, like theology and politics and philosophy, so I like to remind everybody now and then that uh, this is the Central Cast, our weekly podcast from Central Avenue Church, and thank you to all of you who are watching via Facebook Live or listening online on, or, uh, on the podcast recording. Our text this morning fitting with Advent, is Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. And this will be up on the screen for you, I believe. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? Probably a good question. <laughs> the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. And now you, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her, who was said to be barren for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Interesting story, right? You've probably heard it before. This is called the Annunciation. Right? In traditional church terms, that's the Annunciation of you know, the Blessed Virgin and, and Catholic terms. And I think when this passage is preached on in churches during the Christmas season, it's usually preached on to focus on Mary's obedience, right? This is like the takeaway lesson often uh, preached from from this passage. The idea is that we all should be obedient to God and submissive to the Lord's will like Mary was, right? God sometimes asks really strange and difficult things of us, we're told, right? Like Mary is asked to carry God's child in her womb, right? But God asks really strange and difficult things of us sometimes. Maybe he's asking you to go on a mission. Maybe he's asking and you to sell your house and give the money to the church, or I don't know. Like this is how it's usually preached upon: you know, that the faithful are obedient, and we should be as faithful and obedient as Mary is. But this is not actually the original intent of this passage. This is not how the earliest Christians would have read this this story, the Annunciation. That is, that is not the original audience takeaway from this. But in order to understand how the original audience of this gospel, the earliest Christians, would have heard this, we have to understand the recursive and mimetic elements that are here. What do I mean by recursive and mimetic? Well, recursive means repetition 
or a recurrent theme. There's some kind of repetition or a recurrent theme found in this passage that the earliest audience would have seen and said, ah, this is like this other story that we're familiar with. Mimetic means to mimic, to imitate. This story is mimicking or imitating, playing upon tropes and motifs from other commonly known and very popular stories of the day, but also within the Hebrew tradition. Like, for example, we find in this story angel, the angel Gabriel telling Mary about Elizabeth, right? Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, is also miracu miraculously with child in her old age. Think about this for a second. Elizabeth, unable to conceive, a, a Hebrew woman unable to conceive her whole life and yet in her old age is found miraculously with a child and not just any child, but a son of promise. A son who will lead his people and fulfill some kind of divine destiny. Who else in the Hebrew tradition? What other woman with reproductive issues suddenly conceived in old age and had a child, a son of promise who fulfilled the divine destiny? Anybody want to venture a guess? Sarah. It's obvious, right? This is a mimetic and recursive trope meant to elucidate, meant to substantiate this story with that story. The whole purpose of this is so that the original audience would read this and be like, ah, this is Sarah and Abraham and Isaac. This story is founded in that tradition, therefore it's authoritative. Do you see that? The recursive and mimetic elements lend credence and authority to this story. The original audience would say, this is part of our tradition. This is a part of the tradition of, the, of, of our scriptures. Therefore, we should pay attention. This child to be born to Elizabeth is a very important person. And of course, it's John the Baptist, right? As we later find out. But that's how they would have read it. That, that recursive and mimetic element lends credence and authority to this story. Now, the recursive and mimetic elements don't end there. It gets deeper than that. Because there are Greco-Roman demigod recursive and mimetic elements here. Zeus and Jupiter, it was believed, long before Jesus ever showed up. Zeus and Jupiter, the, the, the Greco-Roman gods, it was believed, would come down to earth and cavort with human women and have children with them. These were called demigods, half-human, half-god hybrids. And these demigods like Hercules, Perseus, and Achilles would be great heroes, right? And powerful individuals. They would be even called, be called the sons of God. This, is, this predates Christianity. Caesar, of course, is said to be a demigod. It was believed Caesar Augustus, the Caesar during Jesus' day, was, had a human mother and his father was a true deity. It was said he was, in fact, called the Son of God, right? So it would not have seemed strange or arbitrary for first century readers to read this text and hear about a God impregnating a human woman and her son being a great man of exploit, right? And a powerful individual. That would not have seemed strange or arbitrary to first century readers. I think often in, around Christmas time, churches play on the strangeness and the arbitrariness of, you know, the virgin birth as if, you know, that's proving God's power or something. Like that. No, no, no. That is part of a mimetic and recursive tradition meant to communicate something to the original audience that we have lost. We have lost this understanding of this passage in church history. So this would not have been strange to first century readers. A deity coming down to earth and impregnating a human woman. They would have read this just like they would have read the Abrahamic and Saronic trope. 
It was meant to communicate that this person being born to Mary was an important person, a child of, a child of promise, someone who is going to fulfill a sort of divine destiny, a hero, no less, a hero. This is a child to pay attention to. That's how they would have read this. But the meaning actually goes deeper than that. The scandal of the Gospels, and the Gospels are scandalous, the scandal of the Gospels is not that they played on these recursive and mimetic tropes, even pagan ones at that, but that they, that they exalted and deified a peasant noble. This is the true scandal of the Gospels. Not that they played on mimetic and recursive tropes, but that they exalted and deified a peasant nobody and thereby demonstrated that God is on the side of the poor and the powerless and not on the side of the wealthy and the powerful. That's what made this really shocking to the original audience. Demigods weren't born to peasants. The gods did not come down and cavort with and have relations with peasant women. Remember, Mary was from Nazareth, which was like the sticks, right? The middle of nowhere. A podunk town if there ever was one. Any child she has is going to be a peasant nobody just like her. Why would God choose her? I mean, God can have anybody he wants. What, why would he choose her? When he could have a much more pro a prominent woman from a, from a prominent and wealthy family. Why marry? It's ridiculous to the original audience that God would choose a peasant nobody like Mary from the middle of nowhere. Remember Jesus during his ministry? People would mock him and question his authority by saying, who does this guy think he is? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from a place like Nazareth, people used to remark. That's how little they thought of Nazareth. But herein lies the true scandal of the Gospels. They're scandalous not because they play on mimetic or recursive themes, but because they exalt and deify a peasant nobody. In a, in a time in a world where nobody was doing that, and thereby demonstrate that God is in solidarity with the poor and the powerless, the poor and oppressed, and not the wealthy and the powerful, contrary to popular belief at the time. Do you see that? That's why it's so important that we understand the recursive and mimetic elements of the gospel, specifically of this passage, Mary's Annunciation, here this morning. I'm not saying this to challenge your faith. <laughs> I promise I'm not. I'm not saying it to be all subversive and edgy. Whether you read the Gospels more literally or figuratively doesn't really matter to me. And to be clear, even conservative scholars, those who read the Gospels very, very literally, will recognize these, these recursive and mimetic elements and fully acknowledge that they're in there. They would just believe that God chose to actually do this in real space-time, actually this, his, this stuff historically happened in order to point back to or to lend credence to or give authority to the story of Jesus, to make him part of this, the, the tradition of Abraham and Sarah, to make him part of this Greco-Roman tradition. Even conservative scholars will acknowledge these recursive mimetic elements. They'll just say, no, but that stuff actually happened in real history. It was just... It, the meaning is the same, is what I'm trying to say. Liberal scholars will say, no, these are literary features only. Uh, th these were embellishments to the story of Jesus. But whether you're reading the text literally or figuratively, conservatively or liberally, the meaning is the same. Here we find a peasant nobody, exalted and deified, 
for the purposes of demonstrating that God is in solidarity with the poor and the powerless and not the wealthy and the privileged and the powerful. Sometimes I'm asked point blank, do you still read the Gospels literally? Do you read the Gospels literally at all? And I like to say unequivocally, yes, I read the Gospels very literally. They're literally about justice, literally about love and compassion and hope. They're literally about how God is on the side of the poor and powerless. They're literally about how we can find a divine and sacred dimension to life by living as Christ in the world. They're literally about that. I had a professor in seminary at Fuller who used to say, she used to say whenever she would introduce an understanding of the Bible to us that would be a little challenging or create some anxiety in the room, she used to say, we need to honor God enough to understand how he has revealed himself through the Bible rather than how we wish he did. I love that. We need to honor God enough to understand how he has revealed himself through the text rather than how we wish he did. We need a big enough faith. We need a big enough understanding of God to allow for different understandings, different readings of the text, even ones that we might find a little challenging, a little scary, a little, you know, anxiety-ridden. This understanding I'm putting forward this morning, my, my hope is it doesn't damage your faith, okay? It doesn't have to, is what I'm trying to say. I hate it when people use these mimetic and recursive elements and teach on them as a way of, of you know, telling people, look, the, the Bible, the Gospels, it's all just, it's all just myth and legend, none of it's literal, none of it's historical, or, they, or people use this, these mimetic and recursive elements to say, Christianity isn't really unique, it's not distinct, it's just basically a remix of older cults and legends and, and you know, early mystery religions and Greco-Roman culture and these kinds of, no, no, no. That's absolutely false. That is poor scholarship. Christianity is absolutely distinct. It is absolutely unique. But, here's the catch. The only way to truly understand Christianity's distinctiveness is by understanding its recursive and mimetic elements and how these recursive and mimetic tropes are used to distinguish Christianity as a religion of and for the poor and oppressed and about a God who stands in solidarity with the poor and the powerless. That's what makes Christianity unique. That's what made Christianity distinctive and powerful and still does. But the only way to really get that is to understand the literary features of the text, how it plays upon these, these tropes, these motifs already pre-established. That's why we're talking about it. The Gospels are actually comparable to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Anybody ever seen Charles Dickens? Ever all familiar with Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, right? Ebenezer Scrooge, right? The greedy old businessman who uh, exploits everybody but he's visited by three ghosts on Christmas Eve and they scare him straight, right? And suddenly the next day, you know, he's a generous and kind man, right? What many people don't know is that Dickens wrote that as, as in his words, a sledgehammer. Dickens called that, that story a sledgehammer. He intended it to be a scathing critique of the unjust social and economic conditions of 19th century England. And we're talking about the Industrial Revolution. Think of... London during the Industrial Revolution, it was a horrific place to live. Child slavery, practically. 
exploitation of the working class like you wouldn't believe. Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol, his words, as a sledgehammer to the unjust social and political powers of the day. Now, we've romanticized A Christmas Carol, right? We think of it as a quaint and cute little Christmas story. <laughs> Nobody's calling it a sledgehammer, right? But we should absolutely read it as such. Same thing for the Gospels. We've romanticized the Gospels too much when they were intended to be read as an unprecedented critique of unjust powers, an un unprecedented critique of unjust social, political, economic practices. The Gospels function as a scathing critique of even Caesar himself. Jesus is heralded, is heralded as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, right? That title was reserved supposedly for Caesar and Caesar alone. To call Jesus, call anybody, other than Caesar, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, was an act of sedition in the first century. To say nothing of calling some peasant nobody from Galilee, from the backwaters of the Roman Empire, a crucified peasant, king of kings and lord of lords? That was ridiculous to ancient ears. It was scandalous. It was provocative. It was seditious. But it was a scathing critique. It was read and understood as a scathing critique against the unjust social, economic, and political powers of the day. It was essentially a big F.U. to Caesar and all of that to call Jesus of Nazareth, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. To place him within those mimetic and recursive themes as this text this morning does was unprecedented, scandalous, provocative, seditious, you name it. It was given the finger to the social, to, to, the, to the world order of the day and saying a new world is possible and it's called the kingdom of God, and it is already here. That's the Christmas story. That's, that's Dickens, but it's also Luke. <laughs> it's powerful stuff, right? And this is why Paul, the apostle Paul, marveled in 1 Corinthians when he said, has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, the things that are not to reduce to nothing. I love that part. The things that are. This is the gospel. It is a radical reversal, an apocalyptic shattering of the social, political powers that be, the economic systems that be, the, the unjust systems of this world are called into judgment, put on the scales and found wanting, condemned. This is the gospel. This is the Christmas story. This is the meaning of even the text before us this morning, Mary's Annunciation. The word of the Lord. I hope you can hear it. And I hope you can hear it throughout Advent. We're going to be talking about this and, and more over the next few weeks. So.